Father, we are so grateful for your grace and mercy, your mercy which your word tells us is new every morning. In other words, there's no end, there's no end to it. And it is your great pleasure that you would show your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for that. For everyone that's here this morning that has a relationship with Jesus Christ, we say thank you for your grace, Father. For those that do not, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts, even this morning, even at this very moment, that they might see that your mercy and your grace is extended to them through Christ. Guide us this morning as we spend a few minutes in your word. May its truth become clear to us, not because of our intelligence, but because of the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. May we hear you speak today, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. People have been trying to predict the end of the world for centuries. (laughs) You have probably seen this happen sometimes. Probably seen, maybe if not in person, in a video clip online or on the news, a guy standing on the corner with a sandwich board that says the end of the world is coming. (laughs) I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the doomsday clock. How many people have ever heard of the doomsday clock? So the doomsday clock was started in 1947 by a group of nuclear physicists and scientists, many of whom had been a part of the Manhattan Project. little history lesson here for a moment. The Manhattan Project was the group of scientists and physicists who created the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and then one dropped on Nagasaki in Japan at the end of World War II that kind of brought all that to a close, created all kinds of devastation. And these same scientists who had created these bombs and facilitated this happening and bringing the war to a close soon realized that there would be a proliferation of these kinds of weapons over the coming years as everyone got the technology and understood how it was done. And so they started this thing that they called the Doomsday Clock. And what it was was intended to be a metaphor for how close the world was getting to annihilation and destruction. And so if you've ever seen the Doomsday Clock or if you go on your phones, not now, but later, afterwards in your own free time, and you Google Doomsday Clock, is literally a clock that they set at so many minutes to midnight, and the closer it is to midnight, midnight being the time when the whole world is just going to dissolve and be annihilated in a nuclear holocaust. And uh, when they started this 1947, they set it at seven minutes to midnight, 11.53, and if the world's political climate began to be a little bit more unstable, they would inch it up a minute or two. The closest it's ever been to midnight was 11.58, which was a few years ago at at the height of the Cold War. Interestingly enough, it's also at 11.58 right now. Of course, it doesn't really actually do anything. It's just kind of an indication of where this group of people feels that the stability of the world is. 
Um, and the idea is that the destruction of the world, the annihilation of the world is inevitable unless we do something about it. Now, they're not the first ones to try and put a name on this. It was a guy 150 years ago named William Miller who came out with this big calculation based on a bunch of things he thought he saw in the Bible. And he said the end of the world is going to take place in 1847. And he had the date and everything. And, of course, the date came and went. And so he said, whoop, sorry, <laughs> my bad. Miscalculated, it's 1849. And, of course, that came and went. And that's happened hundreds of times down through history. Uh, I know that some of you will remember well uh, Y2K, uh, how many people bought survival kits and barrels of gas and heating oil and probably still have them in your basement because uh, you didn't use them because the world didn't come to an end when the clock uh, flipped over. But even today in our culture, there's this whole... There's this whole subculture, right? Doomsday preppers. Uh, you can probably watch it on History Channel or A&E or something. But here's what's interesting about that. That show focuses on the extreme and people are building bunkers and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that 65% of American adults have purchased something, either food or supplies or ammunition or something and set it aside because they want to be ready when the world ends. 36% uh, of American adults have spent at least $400 in the last calendar year on supplies to get ready for whenever the world comes to an end. By the way, the world is going to come to an end at some point. I mean, we look at that and we say, man, those guys are crazy. But the world is actually going to come to an end. God's word talks about it. And if you spent very much time hanging around here, you know we don't like to deal in opinions and theories too much. We go to God's word and see what it has to say. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. What does God's word have to say about the world coming to an end? Last week, if you were here, we read from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he said, brothers and sisters, those of you who are a part of the body who have trusted Christ as your Savior, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be aware that we have hope in Christ, right? Remember we talked about that last week, that Jesus Christ is coming back. And for those of us that have trusted Jesus, we will be with him from that point forward for the rest of eternity. Now we're going to move on to this passage at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 5. And what I want you to see as we look at it is that Paul's tone is very different here. Previous passage was comforting to us as Christ followers. We have hope. Christ is coming back and we're going to be with him for eternity. But I want you to see this morning that this passage is a warning. And Paul tells us, that the day of the Lord will bring destruction and judgment on the world. It is going to happen. So let's see what God has to say about this. 1 Thessalonians 5, if you have your Bible, you know the last several weeks we've been working our way through 1 Thessalonians. So here we are, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it's interesting here that, that the beginning of the last passage says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. I want you to be aware. I need to tell you what's going to happen. But when it comes to this, 
Paul says, you don't need to explain me to explain this part to you so much. Why was that? Well, because he's talking about an event called the Day of the Lord. And they were fully aware of it. Why were they fully aware of it? Well, actually, the Day of the Lord is mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So any of them that were familiar with the Old Testament would have already heard of the day of the Lord. And he says, the times and seasons of these, in other words, there is a sequence of events that is, that is going to take place in the future. Now, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament says that the day of the Lord is going to be characterized by wrath and anger and punishment for the wicked. And Zephaniah, who is also a prophet in the Old Testament, says there is going to be distress and anguish, and devastation. Doesn't sound like much fun, does it? The day of the Lord is actually not just one day, but a description given to a series of judgments that God is going to pour out on the world in the last day. Now, I want you to notice, and this is why the warning, he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. This is not the only passage where the day of the Lord is described as coming as a thief in the night. Peter also describes it that way in 2 Peter 3. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Well, how does a thief come? A thief comes suddenly. A thief comes violently. A thief comes without warning. Look at verse 3. Let's continue to read, and then we'll explain a little bit what he's talking about. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, Paul uses another word picture here, not just a thief in the night, but he uses this simile as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, this is an interesting description for him to use, and uh, obviously I don't have any firsthand uh, understanding of what it's like for you ladies who have been pregnant and have experienced labor pains, but I was around when it happened in my household, and I'm fairly familiar with what happens. What's interesting about this description is that a pregnant woman knows that she is going to have a child, right? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty solid on that, right? <laughs> you know, now you may not know for a while, but eventually you're like, okay, this is going to happen. I'm pregnant and I know I'm going to have a child. So you spend months, right, preparing for it, preparing yourself mentally and emotionally and financially, and uh, you get the room ready and the crib ready and all of this, so you know it's going to happen, but you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, right? And uh, I don't know if it happened to you guys this way, but sometimes you, you know, you watch a movie or a TV show and all of a sudden the woman goes, honey, (laughs) it's happening now. Why does he use this description? Because the day of the Lord is not only going to be sudden, it's not only going to be violent, it's not only going to come without warning, but it's going to be painful And it is inevitable. It is inevitable when a woman is expecting a child that she will deliver. It is going to happen. We don't know exactly when. And that's why Paul describes it here. 
But I want you to notice something else from verse 3. He says, there is a delusion that people are going to be under that everything is going to be okay. See, we have two groups of people in our world that think ahead about the end of the world. One of them is the doomsday preppers. <laughs> it's everybody that's like, it's going to happen. The wheels are going to come off. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be looting and rioting in the streets. And I've got to be ready to hunker down and get in my bunker and live off my rations. And But there's the other group of people who look ahead and say, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. It's getting better. I just talked to somebody the other day, and we were talking, this person does not know the Lord, and, and we were talking about our world, and they were quite insistent that things are getting better. The world is getting better. We're getting this stuff under control. And Paul says there is going to be a certain group of people that are under this delusion that everything is okay. Peace and security. By the way, what is it that people want today? They want peace and security. Peace. Let's just everybody get along. Let's just, you know, let's iron all this out in security. I want to know that I'm okay. I want to know that I'm going to survive. I want to know that my family is going to be all right and that we're going to be safe. Peace and security. Some, are de- some will be deceived, some are deceived, some are deluded maybe, but some are just apathetic. If I don't worry about it, it's not going to happen. But notice what Paul says. Here is the reality. He says at the end of verse 3, they will not escape. Judgment is going to come. Let's look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So I want you to notice here that there's two distinct groups of people. In verse number three at the end, remember he said, they will not escape. Who is he writing to? He's writing to Christ followers. He's writing to the church. They will not escape. And in verse 4, he says, but you are not in darkness. What I want you to see this morning is that if you are a Christ follower here, you are not part of this group. Paul says you're not, you're not part of this. There's going to face this wrath, this destruction that is coming, this judgment a few months ago, we were in the book of Colossians, and we read in Colossians 1.13 this verse. Christ, he or Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I don't know about you, but I am very thankful when I read passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul says, There will be destruction, there will be devastation, there will be judgment, and they will not escape. I'm very thankful for verses like Colossians 1.13 that tell me, but I'm not part of that group. (laughs) Because when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you recognize your sinfulness 
in your inability to save yourself, and you trust Jesus Christ, he saves you. And my friends, that means that he transfers you to the kingdom of his son. So you become part of the group that he was describing in 1 Thessalonians 4, that when Christ returns, he is going to take us out of this world to be with himself. But he still says we need to be careful, even though this judgment is not for us, even though we've been forgiven, he says, don't let it surprise you. I want you to be ready. I want you to be aware of what will take place, and we're going to talk about why in just a minute. Look at verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Another metaphor here, another description that he uses for how we should process this information in this event. He says, we shouldn't be apathetic. We shouldn't be indifferent about what's happening in the world. We should be awake. That means we should be vigilant. We should be alert. And also notice that he says we should be sober. Now, there is a little literal meaning for the word sober that I'm sure that most of you understand. The opposite of being sober is being drunk, right? That's what the word means. It literally means to not be drunk. But, of course, there's a figurative meaning here for us as well. And to be sober means to have presence of mind. It means to be fully aware. It means to be free of illusion. It really means don't fool yourself about what is happening around you. Now, let's try to understand this a little bit more. Let's talk about being literally drunk, not figuratively like Paul is talking about, but let's talk about being literally drunk. When you consume alcohol, especially certain amounts of it, then it begins to dull your senses. It begins to dull your reflexes. There is a reason why it is illegal to drink and drive, right? Everybody should be nodding their heads and understanding that, right? There is a reason why it is illegal. Why is it illegal to drink and drive? Because it dulls your reflexes, because you are not responsive on the road like you need to be. You're not aware of what's happening around you. Now, sometimes when people drink, that's unintentional. Well, you know, I was just an officer. I was just going out and having a good time, and I had a few, and, you know. But sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes for people who have a problem with alcohol, they drink intentionally to forget or to dull their senses or to their awareness of what is going on around them because they don't want to know what's happening. They don't want to deal with what's happening. Now, the reason why I'm pausing here is not to give a big diatribe on alcohol But I pause here because it's interesting to read this verse from Paul because I feel like when we look around at our world, that's a lot of what's going on. 
to a lot of what's going on in our world today, and it's this, that people are looking for an escape from reality. People are looking to numb themselves as to what's happening in their lives, in their families, and in the world. I don't want to know what's happening, and they're numbing themselves. Actually, if you watch any amount of television at all or spend much time online and you see all the pop-ups and all that, I feel like there are a number of marketing campaigns out there right now that actually just straight up tell you that in the, in the ad. Escape. <laughs> Escape. I have various things and various destinations. Some people numb themselves with substances like alcohol or drugs or food. Some people numb themselves by overspending. Some people numb themselves with pornography. Some people numb themselves with busyness. We've always got to be doing something. We've got to be on the go. We've got to be on the run. Because if we slow down, then we have too much time to think about what's happening. Some folks numb themselves with relationships, whatever it is. What's interesting about Paul's statement here is that he is saying, look, there's going to be a lot of unbelievers, there's going to be a lot of lost folks out there that are deluded into thinking that we're going to end up with peace and safety and that this is not going on. But what I want you to see, folks, is this statement about being sober and awake is not to lost people, it's to us. It's to believers. And we can fall into this trap too where we do things in our lives to numb ourselves to what's going on instead of dealing with the reality of our lives. Now listen, I'm standing here and I'm telling you, I know life is difficult. I know there's a lot of stuff that we have to deal with in this world. I understand that. But Paul says we can't, we can't do that. It should be different for us. Why? Because of what we talked about last week. Because we have hope that Christ is going to return and take us out of this place in his time. This judgment is not for us. And he is saying, Christ followers... We need to make sure that we are not like everyone else and we need to wake up to the reality of what's happening around us. Look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, he says it again, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What can we do to make us or to help us be alert and to be ready and to be aware? How do we stay away from the temptation to escape and turn out and tune out? Believe me, I understand that. The temptation is real. There are some times when I come home after a long day and I don't want to think about anything. I don't want to think about anything. Turn on the TV, turn on Netflix open the computer, whatever. I don't want to think about it. The temptation is great to tune out. So how do we prepare ourselves to be alert? Well, he says the first thing we need to do is put on the breastplate of faith and love. 
back in the old days, back in these days when soldiers got ready, when centurions and, and uh, combatants in the military got ready, they literally put on these chest plates. Sometimes they were leather, sometimes they were mail, sometimes they were steel, but they put them on from here to here. Why? To protect their vital organs. We actually do the same thing today, don't we? When our soldiers put on a bulletproof vest or our law enforcement officers, why? Because there's a good chance you could survive being hit by a, uh, a bullet in the leg or in the arm, but if you get hit right here, that's the end, right? And that's what Paul is talking about. We need to protect our vital organs, our hearts, and essential to our perseverance and our survival as we walk through the crap of this world. It's okay for me to say crap. That's a technical term for all of the stuff that's going on in our world that's horrible. Essential to our survival of going through all of this is that we protect our hearts with what, Paul says, with his faith, with our faith, that what God has said he will do, that he will keep his word, that we can trust him always. Notice that in this passage, it's the breastplate of faith and love, knowing that he always loves us. Why do we need to remember that? Why do I need a covering for my heart that reminds me that God always loves me? You know why, don't you? Because there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in this life that doesn't make any sense to us. And if we don't remind ourselves that God always loves us, then our emotions will go crazy. We won't be able to tolerate it. We won't be able to deal with it. And he says, for a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. Obviously, the two most critical parts of your body, your heart and your mind. And those are the parts that Satan will attack. How do I protect my mind? I protect my mind with the hope of what we talked about last week that the salvation that I enjoy right now, that the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ right now will culminate in my actually being with him physically, face-to-face for all of eternity. I have to have that hope in my mind because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I'm dealing with all of the garbage of this world, I think, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to deal with this stuff anymore. And Paul says, you protect your mind by remembering the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Remember, Paul says, look, I'm telling you this is going to happen. I'm reminding you that the day of the Lord is coming. I'm reminding you that there's going to be judgment and devastation for the world because you need to know, but remember that God has a different destiny for those of us who are in Christ. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul's point, his purpose in this is not to scare us. His purpose is to make us aware 
and make sure that we are ready so that we can encourage each other. This is how Paul ended the passage last week, too, at the end of chapter 4. This should be encouraging to us. Destruction and devastation is coming to the world and judgment, but we have been rescued from it, and we will be rescued from it. And Paul says we have a duty to each other, we have a responsibility to care for and encourage each other as we walk through this life, as we trudge through the sludge and the slime, we need each other. Encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. The phrase build one another up is literally to build a house. Literally means to make it strong and to make it sturdy. And friends, with everything that happens in the world and everything that happens in our our very complicated lives, I don't want you to ever think that I stand up here and say these things and don't think that our lives are complicated. I do know that they're complicated. I understand that. I understand all the relationships that we have and all the difficulties that we have emotionally, personally, physically, financially. I understand all of that. And Paul is saying that's why we need to encourage each other. He says one another twice in this verse, twice in verse 11. And it means reciprocal. It needs to reciprocate. In other words, I need you guys to encourage me, and I need to encourage you. I need to encourage Julie. Keep going, Julie. We have hope. And there are times when I need Julie to encourage me and say, keep going, Mike, we have hope. It's reciprocal. It's mutual to each other. And there's too much negativity in our relationships that we have in the world anyway. We don't need it in our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters. We need to be, Paul says, building each other up. Certainly not tearing each other down. This is everybody's responsibility to encourage each other. I don't know how many of you have ever read A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Dickens was an English author, writer, as probably all of you know, in the 19th century. Wrote many, many books, but one of them was called A Tale of Two Cities. And even if you haven't read this book, I bet you recognize the first line of the book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You probably recognize that line. What you may not know is that the first paragraph of that book is one sentence. (laughs) It's about 250 words long, but it's one sentence. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but listen to how it goes after that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. (laughs) That's kind of what these two passages are that we've looked at the last two weeks. These two passages are the tale of two destinies. There is a group of people related to Jesus Christ by grace, who have a destiny of being pulled out of this world before it is destroyed and to spend eternity in heaven with our Father. 
there is also a group of people who are not related to Jesus Christ by grace who will not be rescued out of this world and will suffer the devastation and judgment that is coming in the day of the Lord and will spend eternity in hell. There's two groups, two groups of people. Christ followers, Christ is coming back. He's going to take us home. This is our destiny, salvation and eternity in the presence of God. And we need to be encouraged. We need to encourage each other. We need to keep going. We need to be aware. We need to be ready. But we need to also be aware that there are people all around us, maybe even in our own homes, that are not ready. They're not ready. This sudden destruction, this wrath of Almighty God is coming down on those who are not saved, and that should motivate us. It should motivate us. I don't know when all this is going to happen. It's going to happen very suddenly and very violently, but it is going to happen. It's inevitable because God says it is so. And what about those that we work with? And what about those that we talk to at the end of the driveway? And what about those who we live with who do not have a relationship with Christ? They're in the other group. I know there's probably a few people here this morning that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not part of God's family. I want you to know this that Jesus Christ loves you, and he died for you just like he died for me, just like he died for the entire world. And this judgment that's coming surely and suddenly is real. And it's my prayer that you don't believe the delusion that there is peace and security coming because that's not happening. Do not sleep. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or 1 Corinthians chapter 4 rather, that now is the time, today is the day. And I would beg you this morning as we close that if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please come talk to me afterwards if you want to know what that means. Or if someone invited you to come today who has a relationship with Christ, talk with them about what it means to be a part of the family of God because this is real, it's happening. It will take place. Now's the time. What will you do? If you're a Christ follower here today, what are you going to do when you leave here today about those who don't know him? And if you don't, what are you going to do in response to the message of hope that we can have in Christ? I'm going to ask you to stand with us this morning. We're going to close with a song as we focus ourselves on Jesus Christ. Father, we acknowledge this morning that without Christ, his grace, his power... We are nothing. We cannot stand against the tide of this world. But in you, we can overcome all things. You have promised us that. Christ promised it. In this world, John 16, says, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We have that same overcoming power in our hearts and lives each day. And I pray that you will strengthen us. I pray that we would be alert, awake, that we would not numb ourselves to what is happening in our lives and the lives around us. 
who be careful witnesses for you of your love and mercy. And for those here this morning without that relationship, Father, I pray that you will help them to awake from their sleep to acknowledge the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Thank you for allowing us to be together, Father. I pray that we will encourage each other and build each other up just as we have been doing as we prepare for what you have for us this week. In Christ's name.